I've titled my message, How to Deal with Difficult People. I think it's a, a nice little grab at what to do when we encounter difficult people in life. Because when we think of difficult people, we think ultimately of someone else and not necessarily ourselves in light of who is a difficult person. Maybe you're the more, the more difficult spouse in the, the marriage, or maybe you're the, the quicker to lash out in anger, whatever that might look like. We know what difficult people look like because we look in a mirror every morning, hopefully, to understand that that's exactly who we deal with on a daily basis. And not just who we deal with, but with who others have to deal with as well. And so when we think of how to deal with difficult people, this passage here gives us a proper understanding of how to navigate through life with patience, with perseverance, without having a grudge towards someone else, and without us trying to judge others for who they are. When in reality, we know that as James turns his attention from the previous week about the rich and the arrogant... They left money for themselves rather than rightfully paying their employees the money that they deserve. And so from here, he turns his attention to the arrogant and the rich, and he looks to those who were wronged by the arrogant and the rich. And so he says, be patient. This is the same exhortation that James gave to Christians in James 1. In fact, that is the theme of this section continued from last week. It's this idea that patience from this Greek word makrothumia, which describes someone needing to exercise patience, not because they're an impatient person, but because they are in the midst of a difficult season. It is a display of patience because in the moment you may not see the good that can come from this reason for having patience, Yet the reason for having patience in the first place is to hold on to hope that something good will come out of it. It's something to pay attention to because James uses this word patient four times in these five verses alone. And in their context, he is talking to those Christians who are wronged by their employer as they were kept from being given their rightful pay. And I, I don't know if you've seen yourself in a type of situation like this, because I think we can all relate to it in one way or another, whether wronged by someone who's kept us from the expected blessing or a trial that has come upon us out of nowhere. And even though we may not see the promises of God in the moment, we will eventually see the providence of God instructing our life. Things come into our lives that are unplanned, unexpected, and it can be frustrating for us at times because we are unprepared. The Apostle Peter says to not be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So James is saying that our patience in life must be like this farmer who sows a seed faithfully in the spring and then will wait and wait. And the summer months, as long as they are hot, they're waiting for this seed to hopefully grow the way that they want, which is our patience as we wait will be strengthened and sustained, especially when we look at the story of Job and take special concern of his endurance in God's passion and love and care. If, 
you notice about the story of Job, you know that Satan comes before God and says, hey, can I, can I you know, mess with your guy Job over here? He's like, oh, sure, that's no problem at all. He's the most godly man on the face of the planet, which has to beg the question, was he the only person on the face of the planet at that time? But he was the most holy and perfect person. If you wanted to look up to someone, it was Job. If you needed business advice, it was Job. If you needed to know how to be frugal with money, it was Job. If you needed to know how to have joy despite trials in life, you looked to Job. He was always that mentor, that person that you looked up to for advice. And even further than that, Job has all of this destruction take place in his life. And God tells Satan, you can do anything to him, just don't take his life. And so he does all these things to Job, and even despite God's passion and love and care for him, it reveals ultimately where Job's allegiance lied in that moment. Because as everything was taken away from him, he didn't curse God and die like his wife told him to. Rather, he praises God and he says, I didn't come in the world with anything and I'm, I'm going to leave the world with nothing. And so I, just, I have to bless God because of what he has done for me. And so this will do well for us because, as James says, God is coming soon. We know this to be true because on the next piece of uh, the, the spiritual calendar, if you will, is the second coming of Christ where he will establish his earthly throne and heavenly throne at once. It's this idea where heaven and earth collide and he comes to rule and reign here on earth. As we look to the book of Revelation, it reminds us that it is a place where there is no more fighting, there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow, there's no more destruction. All things have its place in perfection because of God. Yet, because we're not there yet, we are to remain in patient endurance, to saturate our mind with the scriptures day to day. I don't know if you've had that dry season of your life where you've recognized that you haven't read scripture or you haven't prayed or you haven't done these spiritual things that we're told to do and you have found yourself spiritually dry and, and sort of bummed out about it, but it just continues on where you're not reading and you're not praying or you're not whatever you want to do to fill in the blank. It's not because you're not doing enough, but it's because you haven't spent time with God in a proper way. And so when we saturate our mind with scriptures, it reminds us that it's not about the doing that gives us the approval before God, but it is the being in his presence that makes all the difference. Soak up the stories of God's providence throughout scripture, because I'm sure you can identify with one of them. In that moment, we may only see the things that threaten protection. You don't see the seed that runs its course in nature and how God takes care of it despite the heat and the birds or the parasites in the soil. All we see are the things surrounding the cute little seed that's trying to grow and we're trying to protect it from any wrong or anything that it can't, that it can't withstand. And yet God in his providence says in Matthew 10, 20, 1029, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without God knowing. It's this understanding that even despite the heat, even despite the rocks or the imperfect soil or whatever else might be threatening this seed to grow in its place, that God still takes care of it. And Jesus goes so far to say, even as much as I care for the birds of the air, how they're not complaining and worried and anxious every single day of their lives, 
They're just living life, and in God's order, they're just trusting God through that process. We also, with this seed of patience, must find ourselves not focused on how to protect myself from from being inside of a trial, but once I'm inside this trial, what are you trying to cause in me to grow? And so it's easy for us to think that God cares less about us at times than a bird. Because we see the birds and they're carefree, they have no worries in all of the world, but the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, whether caused by someone else or whether something that we caused upon ourselves, we know that God cares for us. It can feel like a losing battle at times, and I'm sure even for the farmer, as he waits for the fruit, he does not fret because he knows it's not time yet. You won't see the fruit of your suffering until its season is ready to reveal what is being created in you. You may not see the fruit of what God is doing in the midst of your suffering in this moment, or in this trial, in this difficulty, in your anxiety, worry, depression, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're dealing with, because it has to have its proper time to grow in your life. And so just as the farmer needs patience to wait until nature does her work, The Christian needs patience to wait until Christ does his work. The way we we remain patient is by standing firm. It's this idea of having a solid foundation. Jesus talked about this when he said, build your house on the solid rock, not on the sand, not where all the sand castles get bummed out by the, the break coming in, because we've all been there and done that before. But he says to stand firm that it is a rock, it is immovable, nothing can shake it. Even the greatest of earthquakes or storms will not be able to break down this foundation. So Jesus is not only telling us to build ourselves upon a rock, but he himself is also standing firm. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus when he was here on earth, it actually says in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus stood firm in the face of difficulty. It says that as the, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, ultimately before his ascension came his crucifixion, it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, meaning that he was ready to go to the city where he was about to die. And James reminds us from chapter 4 about this double-minded person who can't determine whether or not they want to follow Christ or whether they want to follow culture. And yet he says here that the person who stands firm is not double-minded, but they are single-minded. They are focused and ready to only receive from Christ. And the reason for standing firm is because, again, for the second time, James says the day is drawing near. So even though we are still saying this phrase, the Lord is drawing near, we look at this with the understanding that the Holy Spirit's goal in our life is to make us holy, which is to awaken the slumber and the sleepy believer to be sure that they are ready for the day of salvation and for judgment, which might come upon us sooner than we expect. We don't always like to talk about the judgment of God. We want to talk about his grace. We want to talk about his mercy and his love and his compassion. But even for, for him to have room for love and compassion and for mercy and for grace, he has to have a place for judgment as well. There's a level of justice that deserves to be met by God. And so as we have this faith in Jesus, it involves in us trusting God with what we cannot control. 
just as the farmer cannot control when it will rain and when it will stop. So James says when it comes to the Lord's coming and the injustice that you are surrounded by, like a farmer, trust God with what you cannot control while honoring God with what you can control. Because most times, if not all times, a trial hits us, it is out of our control. There's nothing we can do to determine its outcome unless we first trust in Christ. And so just as we are to have this patience, he continues this thought by saying in verse 9 to not grumble against one another. Because when we're in a trial, when we're in a season of difficulty, we immediately look for what everyone else is doing also. Well, why is my life not like hers? Or why is my life like this? Why is motherhood for me different than for her? Why does this look this way? Why is my job not as easy or providing as much as it's supposed to in this moment? We find ourselves looking to complain at other people about themselves rather than looking internally at what God is doing through us. That's why James says don't grumble against one another brothers and sisters, or you will be judged because the judge is standing at the door. So while we learn to exercise this patience and learn to endure trials, we will be tempted to sin, which is this temptation to sin in not trusting God. And at the same time, we will also be tempted to lash out in anger on others around us and to complain and to speak ill will towards others. It is an acceptable practice for you to grieve over the difficulties of life, but it is an unacceptable practice to protest against God's design. We can easily find ourselves finding the fault in others as a way of bouncing off of ourselves the pain and the anger we are experiencing, and yet James calls them brothers and sisters to remind them of this family, this family unit that God has created not by humans, but by God. So if God cannot make mistakes or sin, then this family he has brought together is not a fault of his, which means we cannot grumble and complain about the other person. We must seek peace and protection for our brothers and sisters. And so it's from this place of having a grudge that we have with others ultimately reveals a power we believe we hold over others. The reason we have grudges is because we are sometimes unwilling to admit fault, and in the process of not wanting to be wrong, we become the judge of right and wrong. This is something that is very uh, real in my family, in my house right now with my girls, because they easily want to pinpoint what the other person is doing. Dad, I washed my hands, but Finley didn't. Dad, I'm ready for a shower. I listened to you the first time, but she didn't. It's like, what, what does it matter? Who cares? Like, but that's the thing that is starting to form and shape how they deal with situations. Whether it's having to call them in from outside because they're not behaving correctly or they're not treating each other well. And we say, well, you know what? The consequence, which their response is, what's a consequence? It's like, why do I have to explain? Like, I have to explain like, every definition even further. And this consequence is because you weren't being nice to each other, so I have to take this away from you. And they're like, well, that's not fair. And I said, life's not fair. And then, you know, you get into this whole philosophical thing with a four-year-old, and it just doesn't make sense to them. But that's the thing that happens in their mind. They're like, this doesn't make sense. Like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to, but it's that idea of that when one seed does something wrong, it corrupts everything else around it. 
right? It's that idea of the um, being in the wrong company even though you didn't do anything wrong. So before we start judging others, we have to make sure that our hands are clean. James tells us in James 4 to wash our hands because we are sinners. And his metaphor is used to make sure we have gone through the proper channels of judgment for ourselves because the reality is not that we cannot judge, but that we must judge with the right motives. Has anyone ever quoted to you, only God can judge me? And it's like, okay, like we, we get what you're getting at, you know, like you don't want to be um, condescending in a way or you, you want to get away with something that you're doing. And so we use this phrase, only God can judge me. And to an extent, it's like, yeah, only God can judge you. And that's a, like a lot scarier than me judging you right now. But the way that we, that we understand this from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about this judgment and he talks about judging other people. He doesn't say that you can't judge other people, but he says, be careful, take caution, because you are more at risk of judging others while keeping yourself unjudged. Matthew 7, 1 through 2, when Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, James is directly quoting his brother from Matthew 7, which says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So Jesus is not telling us not to judge, or he's not telling others not to judge us, judge us. He's telling us not to judge others. What others do is not our primary concern. What we do should be our primary concern. Our biggest problem is not how others judge us, although we take fault to that, but rather how we judge others. So when Jesus says judge not, he's not really issuing a complete stop to judging others. He's issuing this serious warning to take great care how we judge others. Because the story from Matthew 7 goes on, which is something we hit on recently, in that we are so quick to see the speck in someone else's eye, yet we cannot see the log in our own. Because when we jump to judgment of others, it does not reveal much about them, but rather it reveals much about us. The reason we find ourselves looking at the speck in someone else's eye is because the way we got the log in our eye was made possible by self-righteousness. We're all very good at making ourselves feel good about what God says is bad, and we have a general idea of how bad sin is, but self-righteousness only sees it in others while denying it in ourselves. We're all very skilled at recasting what we've done so what was wrong doesn't look so wrong to us. I become judge when I say I didn't really lash out in anger. No, I was just trying to get my point across. I become judge when that second look wasn't lust. I am simply a person who enjoys beauty and the arts. I become judge when that power I'm craving is just exercising my God-given leadership gift. But foolishness is able to do something dangerous in this context. It's able to look at wrong in others while it tries to find right in itself. Think about this. If David had been able to see himself appropriately, and if he had been able to see his sin for what it really was, it's hard to imagine that he would have continued to travel down the path of destruction that he took. 
Not only did he stay back from war, which was a big no-no back then, not only did he see Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop, not only did he tell his servants to go and get her so that she could come to the palace, not only did he sleep with her, not only did he get her pregnant, not only did he have her husband murdered, but he didn't even know any of it was wrong in the midst of what he was doing. But that's what sin does. It will create in us a stronger desire to sin, and then that sin rests on top of another sin, and then our sin rests on top of that other sin, and as the sin continues to stack up, we forget what first originally caused this sinful pattern in our life, which is why we are so easy to identify the speck in someone else's when we've got this log stacked up against us. And so we have to be careful about what we are projecting on other people as a form of righteousness within ourselves because Jesus says to us, take the plank out of your own eye and then speak to your brother or sister about the speck in theirs. Family, that's exactly it. It's supposed to be a family. That's why James says to not judge others in that way. And he says, brothers and sisters, don't do it this way. It's because this faith that we have is a connection so close that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters because the connection is like the connection of a body. When you get hurt, your brain sends a signal to that spot that was hurt and the rest of the body is affected by that. So we have to know that we're all in this together. We are all in the same battle, fighting the same enemy. And the last time I checked, Ephesians 6 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the air. So we're not in a physical war, it is a spiritual war. So don't lash out at the other party you disagree with, or the person who seems less interested in the injustice you sense God leading you to be a light in. You are not the judge of how someone else handles what they believe to be their method of following Jesus. Of course, if it's blatantly wrong, that's another conversation. But you cannot judge someone based on the way they do small groups or their reaction to the world and to our culture. Because no one died to make you boss. Jesus died. He is the boss. And he says, help others, be compassionate, and let us do this together. Verse 10 goes on with that idea of that family unit. And he says, as an example of patience in the face of your suffering, look to the prophets. The example James gives us is for a good picture of how to live this life in the world while not of the world through the prophets. If you look at how they entered into society and responded to the culture, they were not focused on the words of others. They weren't wondering, what is someone saying about me? Granted, they also didn't have social media to distract them either. But they were given a word from the Lord, and most of them remained faithful to that call. The prophets spoke to kings, princes, and rulers, and they were the ones who changed their hearts. They suffered mentally socially, emotionally, and even sometimes physically for the sake of the Lord. From Jeremiah thrown up into a dried up well, just left to sink into the earth, to Moses regarding the gods of Egypt, David fleeing Saul, Elijah on Mount Carmel, 
He had this massive victory against the false prophets and idols, and yet the next day he was like, I just want to kill myself because I just don't feel like I'm worth it. And then you see Daniel in the lion's den. This is just to name a few of the people who God had given specific words as to how to live their life, and they didn't worry about what other people thought about them. They were focused on what God said about them. And so by the time that Jesus came into the earth, persecuting prophets was a normal practice. In the book of Acts, even when Stephen the martyr was dying, he asked the people killing him, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Hebrews 11 tells us that these men and women were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and beating and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were cut in two, they were killed with the sword, they were destitute and afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. So ask yourself, how's it going? How, how do you measure your life with the prophets? How do you measure your life with what they dealt with? Because we think, oh, I'm being persecuted. Oh, someone's persecuting me. And to an extent, that is very real in our culture. I know of a pastor in San Jose who was being persecuted because he left his church open. I know of a, a pastor in Canada who was arrested in front of his kids, and it was because of COVID, quote-unquote. But it was a pastor who had a, an outdoor service at his church who was arrested because that's what they do when it comes to religion. And so it's not that persecution is not real, but I think that we have to measure up what is my life. Is it actual persecution or is it just pressure? Am I experiencing just this cultural pressure of uh, having to denounce my faith or maybe I didn't get a job because of my faith? That would be persecution. I would say that that fully is a level of persecution and discrimination. But if someone is, um, is trying to use a means by which we think it's persecution when it's not, we would just see that as a cultural pressure. James's point is that the prophets suffered not because they did anything wrong, but because they were doing things right. 1 Peter 2.20 says, Of course, we don't get any credit for being patient if we are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. And then he continues this thought from verse 11. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. He says that they are called blessed. This word blessed does not necessarily mean the word happy, like, hey, I'm emotional, this is great, I'm excited, life is good. It's not this subjective way of saying that I am emotionally happy and attached to my suffering or my persecution, but it is rather objective, which means that it's focusing in on Jesus and the unchanging approval and reward from God for those of us who suffer for his name. Our spiritual development is largely dependent on the experience of suffering because without trials, we would be morally malnourished. And so when it comes to having to not only deal with difficult people and being one of those difficult persons, the way we deal with difficult people when we recognize that maybe they're projecting something harsh on us, we, before examining the speck in their eye, examine what is causing me to look at them this way rather than just jumping to conclusions about them. 
and how to deal with myself as a difficult person is to know that the troubles that I face are ultimately a way for God to cause me to grow. And so that's why we have troubles in life. We have troubles which bring us near to God because when troubles we face in this life, it ultimately tells us, I need help. I can't do this by myself. I have no power within me to do this thing. When our regular comforts do not work, we must find another song to sing. Troubles also strengthen our relationship with God. Because without troubles, we would not learn prayer. If we were sufficient in ourselves, we would not need to ask God for something to which he can apply to us. We would think we are self-sufficient in the power to overcome this thing. So not only do troubles draw us near to God and strengthen our relationship to God, but troubles actually sharpen our focus and increase our grip on God. When all of our attempts at self-deliverance fail, we are forced to trust in the only one who can truly help us. And isn't that who Jesus is? Isn't that exactly what we have been called to follow in, to remove from ourselves the world and to follow a pattern of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus? As he is compassionate and merciful, we know that we must also extend that compassion and mercy to others, with which we have also been forgiven, we have also called to forgive others. And so then James puts this all together and ties it into a nice little bow, and he says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. This is about truthfulness. Because oftentimes, again, when we are judging the difficult person or when we are not wanting to look within as we are a difficult person, it creates this dishonest trust towards someone else, and we feel jaded, and we feel like they did something for their own advantage at my expense. But this is what James is getting at. He's saying, rather than looking at someone from a dishonest perspective or a view or a lens, he says it's about truthfulness. Truthfulness. This is what James puts above everything else in this passage. And yet we know truthfulness might get us in trouble, but it will also bring power to our lives and grace to a very confused world. When we swear to God, we are not only taking the name of God in vain, but we are weakening the power of our witness because God stands behind everything. The entire creation is God's, and you and I cannot call up a part of it without ultimately referring to God. Even Jesus said, the rocks will cry out in worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. So rather than having God stand behind you, why don't you go and stand behind God? We are called to a profound truthfulness that the world scoffs at because they do not know what it looks like. At the very root of our culture is the power of lying because many guilty people have been set free by it and many have received even more power through the power of lying. We know that we are lied to by the media constantly. We have to fact-check everything 
And we don't even know if the story is true or not because it gives itself its own bend. And journalism is at a crossroads of wondering if we can even trust that without knowing exactly what's going on. We can even easily embellish the truth sometimes without knowing it. Because the profit becomes greater, the strength increases, our humility grows, our influence rises to the top, and we sometimes frighten ourselves at how easily we fall into this trap. But the greatest tragedy is when we shrug our shoulders and go on to say, like everyone else around us, to lie is to be human. The church cannot thrive on deception because, it's, because it wounds the body of Christ, the believers, and it is a sin against God. Eventually, even though you might be deceiving some now, you have never been able to deceive God at all. God always knows. God always sees whether you're in private, whether you're in public. God knows all things. He knows the deception of your heart. And if you're using it for personal gain, it will come to an end. And so Paul's encouragement to the church in the city of Ephesus is this, rather speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way to him who is the head into Christ. So whatever your struggle, whatever the sin that you find easy to commit in your life, consider running to Christ and to your community for healing so that honesty might set you free. Let God do the talking for you. So as we draw near to God and he, draw near, and he draws near to us, and when we find ourselves surrounded in his presence, he is causing us to change every aspect of our life. He seeks to be the source of all our needs. And I wonder if we have a hard time taking God at his word. Do I actually believe that he is capable of changing my life and giving me something better or answering my prayer request or actually getting me that job or getting me that house or getting me this or that and whatever I'm pursuing? You see, Christian hope, because that's what we're all looking for. We're we're hoping we get that job. We're hoping God provides. We're hoping, hoping, hoping. We project this hope not as a hopeful wish, It is a hope-filled certainty. There's no prison wall he can break through. There's no mountain God cannot move. All things are possible when they meet Jesus. There's no broken body he cannot raise or heal. There is no soul he cannot save. God is stirring something inside you that is giving you life and meaning and purpose. As he rose victorious from the grave, and no matter how many attempts people try to get him back into the grave, he won't go. All things are possible for the God who does the impossible. So when your situation, when your difficulty, when you feel like the difficulty of other people is being projected on you, or when you are the difficult person, it finds its possibility to be cleared and to be cleaned by Jesus. So it is possible that your marriage can be restored. It is possible that your cancer diagnosis will come back clear. It is possible that your anxiety will meet its match in Jesus. It is possible that your suicidal thoughts will be met with the tender love of Christ. It is possible that you can find healing from past wounds, whether self-inflicted or caused by someone else. Because God desires to awaken this generation, 
He wants to awaken the city, and it begins with awaking what only he can give breath to. The Bible says very clearly that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our trespasses, that there's nothing I can do to resuscitate or revive myself. It is an understanding that God is giving me that breath. I was broken in my shame. I was dead in my sin, but the Bible says that Jesus raises us to new life. All things that are old, all things that have passed away, and all things that are right now in our life in Christ is made new. Your convicted sentence is met at the cross of Christ, and it is deemed, and it is paid for. You are loved, you are redeemed, you are needed to be a reflection of light to this dark world. And so our response this morning can simply be, my hands are held high and my heart is full of praise. Because even despite what I'm going through, God is still going to give me perspective. Despite what seed of suffering I might be experiencing, God is going to use that seed in its proper season to bring about a fruit that I didn't know existed. And so as we come to the communion table this morning, we understand with the proper perspective as we, as we look forward to what we are capable of doing, especially on this day of all days, that the freedoms we have here in America are something that we must be thankful for, that we are blessed, and that we have grace given to us by God, that we could still worship freely the way that we do, because a lot of brothers and sisters around the world are not able to do that. In fact, China just recently mentioned that if they find anyone worshiping in public, they have a minimum sentence of 10 years in prison. And yet people still meet together underground. Bibles are being handed out left and right in China more than any other country right now because there is a season of difficulty, which seems like a really long season for them. But from that seed is being produced in them a fruit they didn't know existed. And it's all simply because of their trust in Christ. They're not doing anything fancy. They don't have this big production fog machine thing going and like the Spirit of God is moving. They're just simply meeting together, reading Scripture, praying together, and meeting the needs of those in their community. And I wonder if we can learn a little bit from them as well. So as we come to the communion table this morning, find yourself with whatever you're dealing with and that seed that has been planted in your life will come to grow and it's from that fruit that you didn't recognize was even able to grow in its impossible situation that God has the last word and that he is doing a good thing in your life. Would you pray with me?